Hello and welcome to the Bunker Roundtable. I'm your host, Andrew Harrison. This week, the astonishing freedom protests in Iran. Young women are defying the morality police. Repressive authorities are arresting children in schools and hackers interrupted national TV. Could the clerics regime really fall? Plus, at home, the hapless Liz Truss is now trapped in a revolving door of U-turns. Can she actually govern when she's lost all authority? The new oil crisis is OPEC aligning with Russia by cutting its oil production. And it's the end of the world service as we know it. The BBC is cutting non-English broadcasting to the bone after years of below inflation licence fee raises. How is that going to work out for global Britain? All that on this week's Bunker, plus some exciting news. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Now, about that exciting news, you may have seen that we carried out listener surveys on The Bunker and our other podcasts a few weeks ago to find out what you like and what you don't like, what you want more of, and what we should do differently. And we are going to deliver, deliver, deliver on that, like Liz Truss, with some big changes to both The Bunker and Oh God, What Now? You said you wanted more core politics, more explainers and more fresh angles on the news that mainstream radio isn't providing. So that is what we're going to do. The Bunker Politics Dailies are hugely popular. So the single subject dailies are going to go seven days a week with a brand new episode featuring your favourite presenters every morning. And the Bunker panel show, this show, is going to change too. We are moving it over to Oh God, What Now? Which means that from this coming Tuesday, there will be two Oh God, What Nows a week, featuring a mix of Oh God, What Now? regulars and your Bunker favourites. That's Tuesday and Friday. We're calling them Togwin and Fogwin. Patreon people, you'll still get all the dailies early. And whether you back the Bunker or Ogwin on Patreon, your generous support all goes into the same pot. And we are hugely grateful for it. All the podcasts will always be free and available to everybody wherever you get your podcasts. So don't worry about that that's not going to change but if you do want to support us you can do so via patreon either the bunker or oh god what now so there we go it's all changed from next week and it is terribly terribly exciting now let's meet the panel our special guest this week is dr julie norman politics professor at university college london welcome back to the bunker julie how are you yeah good thanks for having me back pleasure to be here it's great to have you on. And um, the big news this week has been Putin's horrendous attack on 10 Ukrainian cities after the bridge in Crimea was uh, damaged, we think, by uh, Ukrainian weapons. This is the first attack on Kiev in particular in months. And the scenes are absolutely horrific. Residential areas have been hit. Hospitals have been left without electricity. How serious an escalation is this on Putin's part? Oh, well, it's very serious. I mean, it's significant in both the uh, scope and scale. I mean, these are the first attacks on Kyiv that we've seen since quite early in the conflict, really since June, hitting much more central locations than uh, even was the case at that point. And uh, the strikes are being carried out across the country. And you know, as you noted, we're seeing them uh, just targeting bridges, parks, playgrounds, museums, just clearly targeting civilians. Um, obviously, this isn't the first time we've seen civilians targeted in this conflict. But this kind of uh, pressure on Kiev itself with these kinds of targets is definitely an escalation. I mean, th th these are attacks on civilian areas. Do they constitute war crimes? Well, they certainly do. I mean, anytime you are deliberately targeting civilian areas without a military necessity, that is a violation of the laws of armed conflict. So there's no justification or rationale for this from Russia. It's something that would be classified as a war crime in any kind of uh, litigation that would possibly happen after this conflict. So again, it's not the first time we've seen war crimes in this conflict, but this is a very serious escalation, one that will probably just strengthen the resolve of Ukraine uh, and also Western allies uh, to hold strong against Putin. 
It was it was quite telling that Ukraine's official Twitter said, geez, Russian strikes are not a revenge for the Crimea Bridge. They are a revenge for the fact that Ukraine still exists, which I thought said quite a lot. Indeed. Also with us is regular panellist Yasmin Sahan, staff writer at Time magazine. Hi, Yasmin. Hello. So um, climate change, existential pressing concern. <laughs> So naturally, the British government has decided to ban solar farms from most of England's farmland. The new Environment Secretary, Ranil Jayawardena, says solar panels get in the way of growth and boosting food production. Why are they doing this? Yeah, so this story is a bit of a weird one. It was first reported by The Guardian, and it's a move that the paper says would effectively ban solar panels from about like 40% of the land area of England and over half of like the agricultural land. It, it very much feels like a cell phone, right? Because, you know, we've been talking for weeks and months endlessly about the energy crunch and the energy crisis. And obviously we know that solar energy has the potential to cut energy bills, to, you know, deliver energy security at a time when we arguably need it most. If memory serves, and I think because there were so many other big issues going on, I didn't really notice, but I think both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss were quite anti-solar panels during the leadership campaign. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure if that comes down to like their sort of NIMBY type nature or if it's a genuine like belief that, you know, all the land needs to be used for um, growing food. I, I don't really... That's not, yeah. not in my backyard. That's not in your backyard. That's not in your own farmyard. All of that is to say is it's very confusing. Um, I think it's important to note that The Guardian has said that this is something that DEFRA or the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs would need to get that they would need to get sign off from some other elements of the government. Um, and that's not um, it's not clear that they necessarily will. I think business energy and industrial strategy of that department um, is potentially opposed to this. So um, it, it's an if, I think. But if it does come to pass, um, it, it seems like a, a worrying time for that to happen. Well, now we know that green electricity is also part of the anti-growth coalition. So also with us is broadcaster, commentator and oh God, what now regular Alex Andreo, who will be welcoming the bunker people to our new premises and showing us where the toilets are in the coffee machine. Uh, hi, Alex. How are you doing? <laughs> Hello. I'm very much the bridge, aren't I? This is terribly exciting. When two become one, like the Spice Girls, are you looking forward to twice weekly Ogwens? Well, let's face it, if, if we are to keep up with this government's fuck-ups, we'll be a twice-daily <laughs> podcast by the end of the year, won't we? So I'm not yes. sure excited is the right word. I'm quite terrified. I'm very angry, but I'm also grateful that I get to share that terror and that anger in this sort of therapy group setting yes. twice weekly now. Yes, sharing and swearing is caring. Well, but before we move on, what did you think of the pearl clutching when Nicola Sturgeon said she detests Tories? Isn't detesting them kind of her job? I thought it smacked of desperation by the Tories to talk about anything else other than what's going on. I mean, they have a prime minister who basically wants to uncut bankers' bonuses but cut benefits, a chancellor who tanked the economy, a home secretary who dreams of deporting asylum seekers to Rwanda, an education minister that quite literally gave people the middle finger. I could go on. Mm. I, I think detesting them is a perfectly rational human response. Come on, Alex, what's not to like? Come on. <laughs> The Iranian freedom protests sparked by the killing of Masha Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish woman detained by the country's morality police, 
are awesome to behold in their scale and their courage. Amini was arrested on September the 14th because of an improper hijab, apparently. She died in custody just two days later, sparking a fierce countrywide backlash against Iran's hardline religious regime. Now the government is reportedly arresting children in schools and using live ammunition on protesters. Um, Yasmin, um, the story of Masa Amini's death and the killing of other women uh, and girls like uh, Nika Shikrami, she's only like 16, these are shocking and disturbing. What sort of symbol have these women become? Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly disturbing. Um, and I think, as you mentioned, Masa was, um, she died in police custody after being arrested for not abiding by the morality police's mm. strict dress code. Um, I think she's certainly become a symbol, not just through her death. I think her death was symbolic of the brutality of the Iranian regime and sort of the, the incredibly kind of violent nature of the sort of morality police and, and these rules that they oversee. Um, but, but I think she's also kind of become a symbol of sort of a wider frustration within the Iranian public, particularly among young Iranians um, and how they feel about sort of the state of things, not just to the government, but also the country. Um, and I, in, a, in that way, I think the protests seem to be really going even beyond Masa and, and, and hijabs. Um, they're, they're about the very future of the country in that way. And in fact, there was one piece that I was reading um, I think it was a piece in The Atlantic, actually. But um, it talked about how there was graffiti um, in Tehran. And it said, after Mahsa, everything is hanging by a hair. And how, how big a popular revolt is this in on the scale of uh, recent revolts we've seen in Iran? I mean, we saw... You know, a really violent crackdown on street protest after the rigged elections in 2009. Yeah, very significant. I mean, reading the reports of people who covered those protests then and who are covering them now, um, you know, the, these protests are spanning dozens of Iranian cities, but they're also happening internationally. I mean, you know, we've seen countless videos, even um, Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe participating, cutting her hair. Um, I, I think when, uh, in terms of how it compares to 2009, as you say, that was in response to an election. I think there was largely kind of a hope for reform mm -hmm. um, and, and sort of having political answers to to a problem this time, I think, yeah, it's just really staggering. And it's kind of hard to know exactly sort of what the end game is, because I think obviously with, with the earlier protests, you know, typically with protests like that, there's usually an ostensible goal and ask. Um, but, you know, some of the chants and things that we've seen from these protests, it's very much sort of calling for an end to the regime as mm. it currently exists. Um, who are the morality police? I mean, we, we, hear, we hear this reported on uh, in the news all the time, the, and the, the, the notion that uh, women can just be dragged into a van, beaten for, you know, transgressions that uh, seem bizarre to us. Yeah, they're, um, I think their official name is Guidance Patrol, and they're effectively a part, sort of a wider extension of the Iranian police force. And, and they're basically the government's enforcers. They mm. basically ensure that the country's strict rules regarding dress and behavior and mixing between sexes in public um, are abided by. Um, and, and actually, as a force, it's not really that old. It really mm. came, it was established in 2005, so a while after, actually, the, the Iranian revolution. And I believe under the current... Um, president, their presence has increased um, quite a lot in, in big cities. Um, Afghanistan and Iran are the only countries in the world where women are legally required uh, to wear the hijab. But even in Iran, um, support for the hijab is declining. Polls show that only a minority of the population of, of women um, supports this at all. I mean, are we seeing a generational change with these, these protests that uh, a younger generation will not accept what the previous generations have accepted? Uh, 
I think what we're seeing in these protests and, and as you say, around the world and, and even in, in free societies like France is that I think fundamentally what women want, whether they wear the hijab or not, is the ability to decide that on their own. I mean, that's why you're seeing in Iran women, hijabis and non-hijabis alike being a part of it. And I, and I think just quickly to pick up on this important point, I think what is so striking about this protest is the fact that it is fundamentally a women-led movement. In fact, it, you know, it reminded me, I, I remember a couple of years ago, back when the Belarus pro-democracy um, yeah. protests were starting, historically, women-led protests tend to be more successful for a variety of reasons. Uh, the fact that, you know, women tend to sort of be more innovative with the kind of tactics, the fact that they tend to bring about sort of a broader sort of mm -hmm. segment of the society. It's, you know, it's not just men who are coming up, but women as well. Uh, but also fundamentally, especially in patriarchal societies, as, as I think Iran could probably be classed as well, um, it, it is seen as probably more difficult to crack down on a, on a group of women. Mm. Um, of course, what we've seen from Iran is that that's not actually necessarily the case. In fact, dozens of people have died. A lot of people have been injured. So um, it, I think for me, I, what I'll certainly be watching is to what extent that leads to the longevity and even the success of these protests in terms of whatever it is they want to achieve. Julie Norman, um, are we fooling ourselves to imagine that this might be the beginning of the end for the clerical regime? Well, it's certainly a wake-up call, and I would certainly agree with Yasmin that we are definitely hearing more calls for revolution than simply reform like we may have in the past. These cries of, you know, women, life, freedom, and uh, you know, really calls to dislodge the regime. But with that said, I mean, the, the regime still has a very hard grip and still has a pretty vast web of security forces that so far are remaining quite loyal um, you know, as Jasmine was saying, we kind of look at other social movements where we usually look for some kind of um, chipping away of support to one of those pillars of the regime. So the police or the army, you know, the state-led media. And so far, just we haven't seen that. Um, the army, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, the Basiji, everyone is still pretty much in lockstep with the regime up to this point. So I guess I will be watching to see if we see any kind of... Um, shifts there. And uh, as Yasmin said, too, certainly important that we're seeing this led by women, definitely by students. Uh, I think I and others are going to be looking to how much um, workers and labor unions get involved in this. There was uh, reports of a widespread strike today. So if this continues to spread, it'll get harder for the regime to hold. But at the same time, the supreme leader and the apparatus around him are still quite strong. There was a fantastic piece in The Guardian by Patrick Winsor, uh, which kind of set the whole thing out. And amongst things, uh, quoted uh, someone called Nazanin Boniardi, who's a British-Iranian actor and an ambassador for Amnesty International, saying, never in my 14 years working on human rights advocacy have I witnessed such disillusionment with and opposition to the Islamic Republic regime. Now, Iran is, you know, it, it's quite a young nation, as you know, a large sector of, it's not a kind of a geriatric country like Britain is becoming. Um, it just, you do get the sense that there is a kind of new energy going on there and that perhaps we're about to see one of the generational turnovers. Yeah, it's possible. I, I would note that, you know, this isn't the, this is a super monumental protest movement, but as we've said, it's not the first. You know, we saw protests in 1999, massive protests in 2009, um, rolling protests 2017, 2021. So I think we can almost look at almost every generation, if you will, like Gen X, Millennials, Gen Y, kind of going through all the letters and see that um, the youth in almost every decade since the Islamic Republic's, uh, you know, establishment has risen up and, and expressed this disillusionment. I, I think what is starting to be different now, though, is that many of the 
revolutionaries who really believed in the revolution of 1979 are are aging out or phasing out. And so the core of the population is starting to have a couple layers of these different generations that have felt this disillusionment. Um, and this current Gen Z, you know, again, has grown up very much uh, in a particular time of uh, of Iran that we might see them mobilizing in different ways and obviously mobilizing using social media and things like that in different ways as well. Mm. Um it's kind of shaming when you look at it from the West, how little we've done. Uh, do you think that we and our leaders have perhaps cosseted the clerics, you know, tried too hard to leave them alone around nuclear deals and things? Yeah, it's it's an important question and a tough one, I think. I Speaking for myself from a U.S. perspective to some degree, the U.S. has always tried to thread a needle a bit on Iran, knowing that uh, the regime will, as they are doing now, say that any protests are being stoked or supported by the U.S., so trying not to fuel that narrative more than necessary. This time around, we have seen the U.S. be a bit more vocal, um, actually putting on sanctions on the morality police, which I believe the U.K. did today also and the EU is primed to do. Um, The U.S. taking rather unprecedented steps for the U.S. in terms of uh, lifting sanctions so that there can be more access to social media and technology and encouraging tech companies to do the same. So I'd say the U.S. is doing more than they did, say, in 2009. Um, The nuclear deal is obviously in the background of this also. I think what we're seeing now is just going to postpone that even further. Um, But I wouldn't say that the deal itself in its first iteration was a coddling. I think that was really trying to deal with a very specific security issue within Iran and also try and relieve some of the sanctions that were affecting citizens and creating some of the economic conditions that we see today. Alex, just in closing, the Iranian president, Ibrahim Raisi, won an election in 2021, but it was with the lowest turnout in the history of uh, the Iranian Republic for a presidential election, 25%. Um, Is this a secure regime? I mean, I, I agree with Julie that obviously you're talking about a regime that has a very tight grip on the country. Having said that, every government depends on a favorable ratio of support, passivity, and opposition. And while I fully accept that, you know, the network of enforcement is hugely advanced in Iran, surely there comes a point where there's not enough people wishing to enforce the will of the state to everyone revolting against the will of the state, where it becomes, you know, tricky even for dictators. And so, what would worry me, I guess, if I were the Ayatollah or the, you know the Prime Minister looking at this, is that it seems to me to be quite a quite a death spiral of a battle. There's more and more protests causing more and more oppression, more and more death, which cause in turn more and more protests. So I can't see the off-ramp for their their regime at the moment. There are a lot more people than there are state apparatchiks. And eventually you create the momentum that topples you. Meanwhile, back in global Britain, Parliament is back and every day in the Palace of Westminster is like the first day of school for Liz Truss. Having had her dinner money stolen by the budget backlash, she is now facing having her gym kit flushed down the toilet every day by the anti-growth coalition. After the 45p tax rate flip, Truss is expected to back down on putting benefits up in line with inflation rather than earnings this week. Does she have any authority left to challenge? Alex, um, 
Truss is spending the week trying to placate Tory backbenchers. Is she wasting her time? Yes, is the short answer. Oh. <laughs> I mean, the there are answer? so many groupings now within that party and their needs and their demands and their agendas are so completely irreconcilable that I don't think there's any single thing that will convince all of them not mm. to take chunks out of each other, except perhaps look over there, socialism. <laughs> and it's interesting that there were four cabinet members writing in four different right-wing newspapers on Sunday, essentially with the same message. And I first saw that and I thought, how tiresome. You know, this is basically this year's chaos with Ed Miliband. Yes. But the more I looked at the interventions, the more I became clear that they were not primarily outward. This was not the Tory party talking to voters. This was the Tory party talking to its activists and MPs and saying, mm. please, please uh, don't rock the boat too much because we're about to fall over. Uh, and so the effect was the opposite of confidence in many ways. Yeah. You, know, you don't get four cabinet ministers writing in a Sunday saying, please give your confidence to Liz Truss, if this is a party that has confidence in Liz Truss. Well, with Gove and Sunak and Javid lining up to criticise her, it looks like she's got her own ERG already. But these people are not anti-growth. They're anti-her. Are we now kind of past policy <laughs> and into just pure personal animosity? Well, like I was saying, she has them as well as the ERG, you know, that still exists, keeping an eye on the protocol negotiations, as well as rural MPs who hate fracking or the relaxation of planning regulations, as well as northern MPs who demand more generous welfare, climate deniers who hate any green policy. And, and that's the point, I think. If you spend a decade sort of encouraging irrationality within a party, actually purging it of anyone vaguely rational or moderate, you don't just get one kind of crazy, you get loads of kinds of crazy. <laughs> and as I've said before, I think that's because Truss has mistaken Thatcher's arrogance and intractability for essential qualities that made Thatcher successful rather than the flaws that brought her down. She, she's sort of like a Thatcher drag act that has naturally, <laughs> you know, chosen to impersonate her at her most impersonatable rather than at her best. Listeners, we want to hear your nominations for the Margaret Thatcher drag act name, but I want to ask you, uh, Alex, because you'll be possibly performing as it in future. Who even knows? But I want to ask you, you've got some real inside baseball stuff here. So Truss has appointed a chap called James Bowler as the new chief civil servant at the Treasury. This man is an insider with 20 years of experience. What happened to getting rid of civil service orthodoxy and bringing in the crazy disruptors? Well, to appropriate the clash, she fought the law and the law won. <laughs> um, that's what's going on. Basically, she's no longer on the same page as her chancellor and looking to assert her authority. Um, apparently, the chancellor still wanted Antonio Romero, but, but Romeo, but she put her foot down and appointed a much more establishment figure because I suspect, although I have no way of knowing, but I suspect what went on before the mini-budget was a lot of, don't worry, we're going to smash it, markets will love it. And so seeing how badly it went down, it, it didn't just affect market confidence 
or voter confidence, it affected personal confidence among government figures. So Kwarteng, having insisted that his fiscal statement wouldn't come out until the 23rd of November, is now bringing it out on Halloween, which is a great look. The jokes, <laughs> write, jokes write themselves, truss or treat. What does this tell us that it's kind of been uh, hustled forward to be trickle, put in trickle. a bowl? Uh, trickle, 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 I think. Trickle or treat, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's seen my previous answer. She's now in charge of both 10 and 11. Hmm. Uh, Kwarteng might as well go on holiday. But, I mean, I must say, what an additional shambles at the time when you're trying to inspire market confidence and say, no, really, we're not a complete clown car. If you can't even agree on the date of the budget, <laughs> what are the chances of agreeing on the actual budget? Um, Yasmin, you continue to live in Britain for reasons that absolutely baffle me. You're stuck here <laughs> with the rest of them. Why the hell would you, would you not have to? So amongst the, the little sideshows, Trade Minister Connor Burns sacked last week for, quotes, misconduct. Um, the, the sort of uh, thing he seems to have been caught out for usually happens at the end of a prime minister's term not like five weeks into it. How are you How are you viewing uh, the trust era? Gosh, I mean, I moved here five years ago when May was in power. And then obviously we all saw sort of the Johnson era come and go. And, and you know when a prime minister is in trouble, like it's painfully obvious. And, and this premiership has felt in trouble really since it began. And, and I mean, you know, that's even taking into account that she did have a couple of weeks break yeah. while we were mourning the Queen. But that's increasingly looking like the Queen did her a favour. I mean, I remember thinking this when it happened. I was like, obviously, no one is going to be celebrating this, but there was going to be so much pressure. Yeah. You know, journalists were just, you know, they were gunning to just immediately put the microscope on her government and her plans. And then suddenly the Queen dies and it gives her, they, you know, everyone had to step back and shift gears. So she had a couple of weeks to really get things sorted. And it, it doesn't look, it doesn't appear to, I think, anyone watching that those two weeks or however long were, were used particularly well. But all that being said, I remember with Theresa May and with Johnson, you kind of, when you were looking at them, you sort of knew what could happen that would lead to them leaving. And I guess what makes me slightly dubious or at least slightly doubting almost her, you know, political demise, I guess, as it were, is that I don't very clearly see what steps can be taken and whether the Tories would even want to. I mean, I think they're damned if they do, they're damned if they don't. They recognize they have an unpopular leader. But by that same token, I mean, rules would have to be changed. And, and also, it's just going to look terrible if you spent eight weeks, eight crucial weeks trying to pick a successor, and suddenly you have people talking about deposing her. So what are you going to do? Just depose her and then assign someone, have another leadership contest? I mean, it all it's shambolic now, but the process of getting rid of her also sounds equally, if not more, shambolic. I, I think the state of the Conservative Party at the moment, they probably just sorted out with spin the bottle or something. Um, <laughs> Julie, you're in the lucky position also of looking at this and, and being able to say nothing to do with me. Um, how are you seeing the, uh, the, the progress of the Trust's uh, brief government so far? Yeah, well, there's been a few sweet weeks, I've got to say, where US politics has seemed relatively tame compared to UK <laughs> politics. I, I think someone's just kind of like sitting back with the popcorn and like watching it play out. But um with all that said, I, I agree with Yasmin. I do think it's a bit premature to write off trust. I mean, whatever one thinks of her, she's obviously had a rocky start. But I think I think anyone taking over for the Tories or any other party was just entering at such a such a weird time with these kind of this multi-crisis economic situation that the budget 
was a mess and it's probably going to continue to be messy. But I think anyone kind of coming in was going to struggle. And I think for the Tories as well as Labour, it's not like there's a, uh, a a wonderful, viable alternative to sitting out there writing, ready to step in. So so my my guess is that trust will be there for a bit longer. And, and I think I agree with Yasmin that the Tories would be unwise to try and uh, change uh, change things again too quickly and just you've got to hold the course to some degree. Um, one of the few things that uh, this past government uh, has had going forward, it has been its firmness on Ukraine. Given Truss's clear ability with the U-turns, do you expect her to be able to stick with that at least, you know, even when there's power cuts in the autumn? Yeah, I mean, for the time being, yes. I mean, obviously that will get harder for Truss as well as for all European states as the energy crisis kicks in. But as we've seen from the atrocities today, the kind of aggression we're seeing from Russia demands a continued response like we've seen. And I will say the UK and Truss in particular during her foreign minister time was you know, very out in front of uh, stating support for Ukraine, but also following that up with goods as well in terms of financial aid, in terms of military aid. All of that has outpaced pretty much other, every other European nation. And, and I expect them to continue to hold firm on that. Alex, on the uh, on the energy and gas war, um, the government has just cancelled a public information film campaign to show us how to use less energy. And apparently the reason is because it is down to individuals to decide what is right for them. The campaign yeah. would have cost 22p a head for the whole country. Uh, what does this tell us? I mean, there's, a, there's rejecting the nanny state and there's like, it's 22p a head. I mean, public information does not coerce anyway it's not the nanny state it's it's the teaching state you know and and this is an aspect that i think a lot of people have ignored in this country the state itself is a huge user of energy and we have had zero guidance from government saying how it's going to temper its use of energy. We've seen it in every other developed economy, talking about everything from street lighting to illuminating, um, you know, monuments to government buildings, how, what temperature they're going to be at. I mean, this is just you as a user saying, I'm going to be responsible. So, but not us, you know, we're too, we're too liberal to turn the heating down one degree. Or we get the climate minister, the climate cocking minister of this country. His name is Graham Stewart, who was asked by Sky News, shouldn't we all be trying to use less energy anyway? And replied, and I quote, we are not sending that out as a message. Interestingly, in <laughs> California, where they actually do experience brownouts, Yasmin, she's putting her I hand on her heart. Yeah. There was a ta- there was, there's an example of uh, state governments sending out a text message campaign to people saying, there may well be a brownout this evening, can you please use less electricity? And you see people's use go right down. And and maybe they get into good habits as well, which will stand us in really good stead in reaching our net zero target anyway. More of your anti-growth agenda, Alex. I'm <laughs> Speaking of big energy energy... Some of the world's top oil-producing countries have agreed to cut the amount of oil that they export in a decision expected to raise petrol prices around the world. Members of OPEC+, Plus, the group that includes Saudi Arabia and Russia, announced plans to slash production by 2 million barrels a day, saying that they want to destabilise prices. The fear is not just that prices will rise, but that OPEC has decided to side with Russia in its energy war on the West. Julie, is that a fair point? Have OPEC decided that essentially they're on Russia's side in this? Well, I think there's a couple of different sides to this. And and one thing to point out is that OPEC, I think, has been playing 
the Ukraine war pretty much to their own advantage up till now as well, not really uh, siding strong with one side or the other, but keeping their options open. And what we saw with this latest cut, you know, OPEC's position on this is essentially it's just business. Oil prices were falling. We have to cut production. This is what we do. But it's really hard not to see the politics of this as well. Uh, you know, in the West, we talk a lot about uh, like energy independence. I think for Saudi, they're kind of seeing this as diplomacy independence, showing that they're not bound to the U.S. in the same way as they may have been before. And uh, with this move, they pretty much laid down their cards with Russia. And it was, I think, a slap in the face to the U.S., a slap in the face to Europe especially at a time when everyone is trying to bring down those costs uh, for consumers, but also to avoid giving Russia those profits. So how does this relate to the sanctions regime then? Because obviously, you know, Russia has been selling its oil to China and India and cutting prices to them while, while we've been sanctioning their oil. How does it fit? I mean, the, the sanctions regime is really difficult to understand. It certainly is. And there's a couple different moving pieces. So the, the thing that it's hitting first and foremost is uh, European states and the G7 decided last week to try and set a price cap on Russian oil so that essentially Russia wouldn't profit as much from oil sales. So the same day that that was being negotiated, OPEC Plus made this move to cut um, to cut production and thus uh, raise the prices. So that kind of just makes moot that price cap policy, which had you know, taken weeks to try and get in place. So we'll see if that can move forward in any kind of way. Meanwhile, you know, the EU has been um, very intentional about winding down oil imports from Russia by December. So that embargo is set to go in place early in December. But as you noted, there's this catch-22 with all of this, because as Russian oil gets cut off from the West, it becomes more appealing to other markets. So India, for example, used to have a pretty negligible amount of, uh, of Russia, um, Russian oil. Now I think they're up to about a 1 million barrels a day. And that's simply because Russian oil has become much more affordable for them. Uh, we're seeing the same with China and several other states. So as much as I think the UK, the EU, the US wants to uh, uh, see the sanctions as working, on a global level, they are being outweighed by essentially other buyers. So this represents about 2% of global oil supply. Um, that's being cut. If you're ancient like me, you still have this kind of memory of the oil shock of the early 70s and queuing outside the petrol station for hours with your dad while he wanted to put, fill up the van. I mean, we haven't noticed that immediate shock uh, in, in Western countries yet. How close to that scale of events are we? Yeah, I would say it's important not to uh, not to be overly alarmist about this either. The 2% cut is notable, but with that said, the amount of barrels, some have estimated that some OPEC countries were over, already underproducing by that amount already, so that the actual supply may not change that much. But it does change the markets, it does change the pricing, and I think we can expect uh, gas prices to go up because of this. And OPEC Plus is willing to just you know, stick it to the US and the UK and the West uh, if and when they want to. And so I imagine this is not necessarily the last move that we'll see like this. Alex, you have a, a secret sordid past life in composition law. Uh, and you've <laughs> it's not got, you've that got secret. <laughs> <laughs> you've got thoughts about OPEC and OPEC Plus, haven't you? Well, I mean, look, OPEC, in terms of competition law and free market economics, they're an, abom an abomination. There are no advanced economies that would ever allow this kind of collusion and price fixing at company level. 
and yet, because it's at sort of state level, we we put up with it. The Americans have been trying to introduce, I think it's called the No Oil Producing and and Exporting Cartels Act. Very handy acronym, NOPEC. NOPEC. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they've been trying to introduce that for at least 15 years on 10 separate occasions. And this is merely to lift the shield that OPEC enjoys in being subject to normal antitrust laws, basically. I mean, it, it is an anti-competitive measure. It distorts the market. And it should actually be conservatives the world over say. who are, uh, you know, completely vexed by this. When's, when's uh, Brexit Opportunities Minister uh, <laughs> Rhys Mogg going to do something about that? I'm shocked and just disgusted. Um, when the pandemic hit, oil prices went right down because demand fell so much, so much that at one point they apparently turned negative somehow. Did we all miss a trick by not, you know, filling swimming pools with oil? Um, did we? <laughs> I mean, the broader way. Uh, I mean, if I had a swimming pool to fill, I, I, I don't know. Look, the... But there is something to that, right? Because yeah. who buys oil? It's not us. It's not our government that then supplies it to us. It's the same energy companies, which very often are vertically integrated. Mm. And they're the people making loads of profit from, from supply being restricted. So why would they buy from this themselves at terrible prices? They're probably buying loads of oil now that the price is going up. It's almost as if the whole thing's a big racket. <laughs> Yasmin, um, gas prices, gas petrol prices are the most important determinant in, in some respects in American politics. What does all this mean for Biden and his prospects in the midterms? Because the first thing you hear is, but gas prices are up. He's doomed. Yeah, well, the, the fist bump with um, MBS a few months ago certainly hasn't aged well. Mm. Um, it, there is a concern, of course, that this could affect the midterms, which I think is why we've seen the blistering response from the Biden administration in response to this. Um, and, and that's why the president has called for there to be continued releases from the country's um, strategic petroleum reserve. That's the swimming um, pool. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, back in back in April, people probably remember they, you know, he announced that they were going to use it. It's down to apparently its lowest levels. Um, since July 1984. So clearly they've used quite a bit of it. They're going to continue to use more of it. So I think there's a hope that they'll still, despite this, try to keep prices lower, at least ahead of the midterms. What are your bets for the midterms? Uh, I mean, we know these, that obviously midterms, the incumbent, you know, the, the party in power tends to do poorly. The big issues, I think, are going to be inflation and the economy. And these are issues that obviously the Republicans, I think, are going to seize on. As for Democrats, though, um, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but abortion and the reversal of Roe v. Wade, I think, is is definitely a mobilizing factor. In fact, I was talking to overseas um, mobilizers because obviously there's, uh, you know, uh, quite a big contingent of Americans abroad, lucky you mm -hmm. all. So there's a hope that they'll, um, they'll turn out once more in the midterms. And that was a big issue that apparently has got a lot of Democrats voting. Obviously, a potential Trump run and electing people who are parroting his election fraud claims, particularly in key state positions. Um, that's another thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have no idea. It looks like, I mean, from what I've seen in the polling, it looks like Democrats likely to keep the Senate, Republicans potentially likely to take the House. If they do that, obviously, that makes it very difficult for Biden to do pretty much anything. <laughs> I think mm -hmm. that the remainder of his of his term running in, in the run up to 2024. And we still don't know 
I mean, he says he's running. We still don't know if Donald Trump is running, though I guess one could assume that he will. So mm. it's all a big unknown. We'll be digging our teeth deep into all this on the new regular thing, Bunker USA, that's going to be running on Saturdays after we change the... Uh, that. So keep an eye out for that one. I'm Yeehaw. frantically trying to rearrange our theme tune in a kind of Sousa style with lots of, you know, <laughs> t- tubers and marching band stuff. Finally, following successive Conservative government's war on the licence fee, the BBC has announced big cuts to its world service output, a decision which will result in the loss of hundreds of jobs. But the main thing is it will have huge ramifications for Britain's soft power around the world. The corporation will stop producing radio output in 10 languages, including Chinese, Hindi and Arabic. Yasmin, um, America has the voice of America. We have the world service. How does like closing off your voice to countries around the world in their own languages, how does that fit in with global Britain? It doesn't. It's, it's, mm. it's, I mean, you know, when I think of Global Britain, I actually do like, you know, genuinely and sort of that idea, I do think of the BBC World Service. Mm. Um, you know, this is a service that has hundreds of, of millions of, of, of listeners all around the world. You know, in fact, when I've joined the, the service, when I've been invited on, I've always been struck how you have people calling in from so many different countries. Mm. Um, and, and it's always, as you just said, it's it's been in, it's known, I think, predominantly as an immense source of soft power. Obviously, this is something, you know, when I've talked to people who, who are at the World Service, they, they don't like to to stress the, the government participation because, you know, at the end of the day, they are an independent source of journalism. But for Britain, fundamentally, even just as a political tool, I think it's very important um, in terms of shaping how the world sees and understands Britain. Um, and, and particularly when you think about the, the role that the World Service plays in countries where access to free and independent media is potentially limited. Mm. Um, you know, this is the role that Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty plays for the U.S. I mean, it was created precisely to reach those difficult audiences at the time behind the Iron Curtain, but now all over the world. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a disaster. I think. Well, you know, massively clear present example, uh, BBC Persian is yeah. going to be closed down, and we've literally just been talking about Iran, and it's like this is. It could not be clearer, the value. 100%. Yeah, I mean, they had to move. I remember when, when I attended an event, they were talking about this. They had to move the Iran service to the UK because they couldn't have their journalists operating in the country for mm. reasons we can understand. It's an immense service. And, you know, I thought that them doing that was, you know, because they wanted to keep, they, they felt like they, they had a duty to those audiences. So it's a shame that they're now kind of being put in a position where they have to cut costs. And I think either way, I mean, you know, when you're put in that position, you have to make difficult choices. And um, yeah, it's a shame. It just feels like the people who benefit from these services most are probably going to be worse off. Alex, it's very on brand for our government to say we're still going to broadcast to the world, but only in English, in a very loud voice, like you're like you're in a bar in Spain shouting beer. Um, so these cuts have come off the back of like a decades long chiseling away the license fee and also loading of costs onto the BBC. The sum total of these closures is a massive twenty eight million pounds or two energy awareness campaigns. Hmm. I mean it's buttons, isn't it? But the effect is huge. Yeah, it doesn't I mean, it doesn't appear rational. Um a charitable reading would be that there's a calculation there that English has now penetrated as an international language so deeply and widely that you can get away with just having a a sort of news service in in English but it I mean it doesn't make any sense to me it is hugely influential I don't know of a single other comparable organization to be honest it, it is bound with people emotionally especially in Europe and the Middle East but I fear it's it's part of a wider move I think against 
any outside voice, any outside perspective, and against foreignness in general, against intellectualism. Um, I found out um, a couple of weeks ago that the BBC have canned Dateline London, which was, after a quarter of a century, I mean, it was genuinely my favourite BBC news output because you got very seasoned foreign correspondents without an axe to grind, but also without needing access to the government, giving a very, very, and they've just canned it. But I guess these are things which they can cut, which are not immediately visible to their own voters. And so they're always up for the chop. Yes, but you just mentioned Voice of America. Trump decided to mess around with that, didn't he, when he was president? What happened there? He did, yeah. He basically said, you know, the, the logic of both him and, and Mike Pompeo um, was that, you know, the Voice of America must, you know, tell America's story and it's because we're in charge, it's our story. Um, and, and he wasn't just threatening Voice of America. In fact, he was affecting all of the state-backed broadcasters that the U.S. has. That includes Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, uh, Radio Free Asia. Um, and in effect, what they did was tried basically kind of fired all the heads of those or tried to get rid of them and put in their own people. And, you know, if you're working at a place like RFERL or the World Service, that's just anathema to what these services are meant to do. Yes, they're state-backed and that they're state-supported. They're given the money. But editorially speaking, they're meant to be free and independent. They're, and, you know, it, the soft power there is that it's meant to almost not just inform the world but provide a model showing the value of a pre free press by providing it to, to parts of the world where it's not accessible. Um, so it was this huge fight. And, and thankfully, in the case of VOA and RFERL, Trump was not successful. Um, these institutions fought back. And thankfully, under the Biden administration, you know, the people who, who were fired, were many of them were restored. I, I think, thankfully, what we're seeing here is not a, this sort of weird political desire to undermine the value of the service. But when you gut it financially, unfortunately, you know, you can end up with the same effect, which is just bad. And that brings us to the end of the Bunker panel show, which means it's time for Escape Routes, which, by the way, we're going to carry on doing in the new version of the show when it becomes Oh God, What Now on a Tuesday. So don't worry, you will still get hints and tips of books, films, TV shows, music or anything else that helps the panellists have a mind break from the brain-melting world of politics. Alex, what's your escape route this week? So I am making bulb lasagna. What? What I am making bulb lasagna. This is not an abomination like Ian Dunst's Doritos lasagna. Shall I explain? Mm -hmm. Please. Okay, so <laughs> it is a process by which you pre-plant a series of different bulbs. It's very cheap. Now is the time to do it. And if you only have a couple of pots by your front door, or if you only have space for one window planter, it's a very space-saving thing. So you basically do a layer cake of different bulbs that flower from different depth at different time of the year. So you layer tulips first, then let's say hyacinths, then maybe narcissus, then crocus little bulbs at the top. And from very early on in the spring, you have this explosion of color that just keeps coming through each other there's always something new breaking through and it's just the most beautiful thing and and making them is incredibly zen this sounds like something swamp thing would come up with <laughs> it's wonderful
Julian Ullman, what's your escape route from uh, political uh, horror at the moment? You, I, I don't think I could top Bob Lasagna is the thing. I mean, at first, <laughs> first I thought it was going to be food, but then this like flower description was just so like zen. I'm still like in that bubble. But um, well, for me, I started a new book this week called The Spirit Engineer by A.J. West, which is uh, out right now. And it's, uh, it's a novel, but it's based on a real person and events in Belfast about 100 years ago. And I moved here from Belfast. So I thought that was great. And it dabbles quite a bit in the supernatural and trying to commune with the dead after the Titanic um, uh, disaster. So it seemed like quite a good choice uh, for October and lead up to Halloween. So The Spirit Engineer is my book of the week. Sounds fantastic. Yasmin, how about you? Um, so I kind of took the longest sabbatical from like reading for pleasure, um, just with the world being the way that it is. I feel like I'm always reading sort of nonfiction, but I, I have started reading a book that was um, a gift from a great friend. So if she's listening, I, I apologize for only starting to read it now, but it's called The Parisian. Mm. Um, it's about this uh, young Palestinian man who leaves his home in Naples, which happens to be where my family's from, and, and he goes to France um, during the, the the First World War. I'm still kind of in the early stages, but I'm really enjoying it so far. It's The author is Isabella Hamad, so... Um, I'll report back if I actually recommend it, but I'm really enjoying it so far, so I would check it out. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, uh, mine is, is, as ever, in sharp contrast to everybody else's. I'm low culture corner here. Um, I was uh, I, I had a night in on Saturday and I thought I'm going to return to a strip in 2000 AD comic that I had not read from beginning to end in its entirety called Brink, B-R-I-N-K. This strip is so fantastic. It is essentially, do you remember True Detective with Matthew McConaughey, that kind of occult yeah, yeah. TV series? Well, this is basically True Detective on a gigantic orbiting space station where the human race has escaped because we've wrecked planet Earth. And you <laughs> think it's a murder procedural, but behind the murder is something very, very strange and big and cosmic happening. It's um, written by a guy called Dan Abnett. It's drawn beautifully by a guy called I.N.J. Colbard with just very simple lines but stunning stupefying color and it's utterly gripping it is as exciting as the best thing you'll see on sky atlantic or apple tv plus and the books are available so you don't have to read it in weekly parts like me so that's brink b-r-i-n-k from 2000 ad comic the home of everything that's good if you don't read comics read this you will start reading comics it's fantastic andrew do you have mm -hmm. a two-sentence Potted review of Werewolf by Night as well. I'm sure this is. Haven't seen it yet. Will want... Oh, you haven't. haven't. Okay. I'm saving it for Halloween. But we I shall do discuss know. next week. It's got BB from Fraser in it, so what could be better? And you should Sorry. see the face on Yasmin. Now she's, oh, baby's in it. Actually, that's my escape room. I watched Fraser earlier today. There you go. There well, you go. And, and, and they've just launched. They've just announced the pilot for the next series is definitely happening. There we go. There are good things out there. There are good things out there. And that's the end of the Bunker Panel Show in its current form. To be reborn next week, regenerating even, as Tuesday's Oh God, What Now? or Togwin. Thank you to Yasmin Sahan. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Alex Andreo. I am honoured. And thank you to our special guest, Dr. Julie Norman. Thanks, it was a lot of fun. It's grateful. Please come back in our, in our, in our new incarnation. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily. And now this panel will begin to shimmer and glow and regenerate as the first of two Oh God, What Nows next week. First one out a week today. Head over to Oh God, What Now on your favourite app to subscribe so you don't miss it. Bunker Patreons, we remain enormously grateful to you. You're helping us to expand the Bunker Dailies with new surprises and new regulars. If you haven't had your shout out yet, don't worry. You'll still get yours on Start Your Week. Well, everybody else, if you just want to support us, just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Now, let's have the latest of those shout-outs. Hello, and big thanks from me to Paul Descombaz, Victoria Zulinu, 
Simon Fathers, James Crane, and Gail Tolk. Big thanks from me to Dave Barton, Ed Fitzhugh, Chris Green, Daisy Yates, and Claire. And hello from me, and huge thanks to Fiona McRae, Rob Kinnear, Thomas Earnshaw, Rob Colley, and Andy Oldham. We'll see you next week in our new book. The Bunker was presented by Andrew Harrison with Yasmin Serhan and Alex Andre. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieburn, and the producers were Alex Reese, Yelena Sofronovic, and Jacob Archbold. Assistant production is by Kasia Tomashevich, and lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, theme tuning by Kenny Dickinson, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>